morning. So epic. You can feel it vibrate when you're standing up here. <laughs> uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Heather. I am Pastor Jean's wife. I take care of a lot of the administration here at the church. And as many of you have observed in the past, when Jean is in shorts, someone else is up here. And if I'm, I'm in a collared shirt, that's generally my turn. Um, some of you may or may not know that in my past life, I used to be a history teacher. Seventh grade, that was fun, and people asked, do you want to go back? I'm like, do you watch the news? No. Anyway, um, it used to be fun, but generally, the first day of school, I used to ask the students to raise their hands and tell me which one of them hated history. And so you can imagine their fright. This is the first day of school. I introduced myself. Mrs. Simcom, you're a new teacher. Welcome. Take, you know, role and everything. And then ask them to tell me that they hate history on the first day of school. What a great first impression. And so in their reluctance, I generally raise my hand first. And I let them know I used to hate history. And so my goal for you by the end of the school year is to get you to go from hating history to hating it at least a little less because I had the fortunate opportunity of having an instructor change it around for me, other than having timelines and memorized dates and all of the kind of boring way that I used to learn turned around for me, and it really brought it to life. And that's the point at which in college I went from, hmm, maybe I'll be a history major and teach history. So that was part of my path. And so likewise, we are going through this story, the rest of the story, unredacted, trying to help you get less intimidated by the Bible. And again, I'm going to raise my hand. I started reading the Bible from the beginning. I'm going to be a good Christian. I'm going to be, start writing Genesis. And I got to one of the genealogies. <laughs> Couldn't pronounce 90% of the names, got completely lost, and then decided to just skip to a chapter that I kind of recognized. I'm like, oh, good. We're in Moses. That's Exodus. But whatever. I kind of understand the story. So our goal for you is to actually walk you through, help bring life to the stories that are in between and make the Bible less intimidating so that you feel inspired to pick it up more and understand the stories more than where you're at, regardless of where you are in your journey. We know some of you are more proficient than others, but if you're like me, like I was in the beginning, I was like, yeah, I'm just going to go on Sunday, let the pastor explain it to me and hope he knows how to say the names right. I don't know. So that's where I used to be. Today, a little further along, but nowhere close to Gene. So that's why he's in charge, and I come up here once in a while. So we're working our way through Genesis. We are finishing today. I get the fortunate opportunity of 13 chapters of Joseph from 37 to 50 as we enter Exodus starting next week. And Gene has explained to you, last week we took a sidebar with Simeon and Levi and the unfortunate tale of revenge over Dina. If you missed it, go back and watch it. You can fill in the gaps for yourself. And then Judah and Tamar, another wonderful story of Judah and his daughter-in-law. Again, read it for yourself or watch last week. Some interesting details back there as well. So today, as I said, I get to go through the wonderful story of Joseph, which many of you know. He had the many-colored robe, his ascent to second in command to Pharaoh. But much like what we're going through, I'm going to walk you through the rest of the story. So the teacher inside of me cannot help but give you a chart because I'm a visual person, and I know Jean has probably explained this at nauseum, but in order to understand Joseph and where he is in his family, it's really important to understand the family dynamic of Jacob's four wives. So his four wives, once again, they're colorful. I, was, I dug through the images. This is so much easier now being a teacher. I can just Google what I need. So we have Leah, Zilpah, Rachel, and Bilhah. Now, I'm not going to call on you because we're live, 
Rachel was supposed to be Jacob's first wife. He gets tricked, ends up with Leah. Again, fill in the details. You can go back and watch Gene's message. He ends up with Leah. Then Zilpah, his servant, Rachel, and Bilhah. But his first love is Rachel. That is who he wanted to marry first. He has multiple sons, one daughter, Dina, and they're all color-coded for you, which is wonderful, and Joseph in his many-colored robe. To understand what is so important about this is Jacob has Joseph and Benjamin from his favorite wife, Rachel. They are full brothers. The rest of them are half-brothers. Again, I can relate to Joseph. I had half-brothers growing up. I know not everyone here has had that fortunate multi-dynamic family um, upbringing, but I can relate to the fact that sometimes half-siblings, there are favorites, there are other dynamics going on in a household when there are different wives and half-siblings. So we have Joseph and Benjamin who are the favorites from Rachel, and on top of that, Joseph is considered... Jacob's firstborn because Rachel, in his mind, would have been his first wife. So therefore, Joseph, in his mind, is his firstborn son, even though he's second to youngest. So inevitably, his half-brothers hate him. On top of that, any of you have younger siblings, Joseph is a tattletale. He likes to go and tell his dad all the bad things that his brothers are doing. Again, I understand that. My younger half-sibling decided to tattle on us all of the time. Not fun. Make matters worse, Jacob gifts him a multicolored robe. One thing to understand about this time period, anything that is dyed in color is extremely expensive and usually meant for royalty. So if you have anything of one color, that's insane. If you have multicolored, I don't even know how much this would have cost. So it's waking up on Christmas morning and your brother, half-brother, gets the most extravagant gift and you get like coal in your stocking and some batteries. You're like, Great. That's awesome. Thanks, Dad. Rub it in a little more that you love Joseph over all of us. Again, we're going to make matters worse. Joseph has a dream. I'm going to read this to you in Genesis 37. One night, Joseph had a dream. And when he told his brothers about it, they hated him even more. Listen to this dream, he said. We were out in the field tying up bundles of grain. Suddenly, my bundle stood up and your bundles all gathered around and bowed low before me. His brothers responded, so you think you will be our king, do you? Do you actually think you'll reign over us? And they hated him all the more because of his dreams and the way he talked about them. Soon Joseph had another dream, and again he told his brothers about it. Listen, I've had another dream, he said. The sun, moon, and eleven stars bowed low before me. This time he told his dream, the dream to his father as well as to his brothers, but his father scolded him. What kind of dream is that, he asked. Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow to the ground before you? But while his brothers were jealous of Joseph, his father wondered what the dreams meant. So his dad scolded him a bit. You know, don't rub it in. You're already the favorite. But also trying to wonder why in the world they're going to bow to Joseph. So we'll find this out by the end of the story. So one day, Joseph's brothers are out. They're all shepherds. As we know, Jacob multiplies the sheep, so that's the family business. And so they're out in the fields taking care of the sheep, Joseph is to go out and check on them and report back what they're doing. So Jacob sends him out. Joseph heads out to check on them, goes to Shechem, finds out they're not there, asks an old man, hey, where'd my brothers go? They moved on to Dothan. So Joseph heads out and finds them. He is 17 years old at the time. This is an important detail. Joseph's heading their way. And of course, he's in a multicolored robe, so you can't miss Joseph coming off in the distance. So his brothers are now plotting. Here comes Joseph, dad's favorite. Why don't we just kill him? Get this brat out of our way. 
And so it seems like when you're reading the details, Reuben wasn't around when they decided to kill him. He comes in, hears about the plot and says, guys, let's not have the blood on our hands. Let's just throw Joseph in a cistern. We'll punish him. And then that's it. We'll just tell dad, we'll trick him and say that he's been killed. And so they decide to tear his robe off of him, throw him in a cistern, which is like it's supposed to hold water. Luckily, it's empty for him. There are other stories where it's a lot worse for the person thrown in the cistern. And so the brothers leave Joseph down in the cistern, decide to have dinner. They're camping. Judah steps in and says, well, instead of just killing him, they see Ishmaelite traders coming off in the distance. Why don't we just sell him into slavery? That way the blood is not on our hands. Now, if you remember Reuben and Judah, these are key players. Reuben is going to kind of redeem himself a bit after what happened with Bilhah. Again, you can go back and fill in the blanks. And Judah, as well, is going to, they're going to be redeeming characters. So Judah steps in for Joseph the first time. And instead of just killing him, they're going to sell him into slavery for 20 silver pieces. Reuben apparently isn't around for the detail. He comes back and sees that Joseph is missing because he planned on taking him back to his dad to kind of like let the brothers get it out of their system and bring him back home and rescue him, only to find out that he had been sold into slavery. So what they do with the robe, they tear it up, they kill a goat, dip it in blood, and send it back to their dad. What a horrible gift. Uh, Isn't this your son's cloak or robe? And so Joseph being gone, his favorite son is seemingly dead. Jacob laments. He tears his clothes, then puts on burlap, which I'm not sure is very comfortable, and grieves for his favorite son, unconsolable over the loss. So then if you're reading through, we have Genesis 38, which takes us to Judah and Tamar. Back to 39, Joseph is now sold into slavery to Potiphar, who happens to be the palace guard in charge for Pharaoh. Joseph has God on his side. So although these horrible things are happening to him, God blesses him and Potiphar's house as a result. Potiphar's house is so plentiful and bountiful. Potiphar's, you know what? I'm going to put Joseph in charge of everything. And now all Potiphar has to worry about is basically what to eat. Really says that. Like, that's all he has to worry about every day. Kind of nice. So Joseph takes care of everything. Overachiever, super administrator, takes care of everything. Apparently, he is a very good-looking man and well-built. Turns out Potiphar's wife takes a liking to him and tries to proposition him to sleep with her. Joseph, sleep with me. And he says, um, no, my master has put me in charge of everything, has not held anything from me except for you because you're his wife, and I don't want to sin against my God and, you know, ruin my relationship with my master. And so he gets away from her the first time tries to stay away from her as much as possible to not be left in a room alone with her because she keeps trying to pine after him. Unfortunately, one day, they end up in a room alone together. I don't know how that happened because he's trying to avoid her. Once again, he sa- she says, Joseph, sleep with me, sleep with me. He says, nope, runs away. She grabs his, ro- his robe, cloak. It's depending on the translation, the details. Loses a garment of clothing. He has a habit of doing this when he's trying to get out of trouble. She holds on to the garment, then finally screams, brings in the servants and says, look what Joseph tried to do to me. He tried to take advantage of me. Holds on to the garment. Waits for her husband to come home. Potiphar, look at what this Hebrew slave you brought into my house did to me. He tried to take advantage of me. So in her insecurity, reverses the story, claims that Joseph tried to take advantage of her. Potiphar doesn't even ask his side of the story and just throws him in jail. Awesome. Sold into slavery, now thrown in jail. Hasn't done anything wrong, except for being a tattletale, a goody two-shoes, and an overachiever, but 
Not a great end of the story for him so far. So God is with him. Joseph ends up in prison. But this is the prison for Pharaoh's specific people that he throws in, including his cupbearer and baker. The warden, again, seems to learn from the fact that God has blessed Joseph, puts Joseph in charge of everything and doesn't have to worry about anything at all. So the warden gets to lay back, read a book, check out Netflix, while Joseph basically does all the work and keeps track of all the inmates. So he meets these two gentlemen. They're there, says, for some time. Again, we're not sure exactly how long. They both have dreams. We know Joseph is great with dreams. Cupbearer has a dream. He says, do you think you can interpret this? Joseph says, I don't interpret dreams. God interprets dreams, giving God the credit. So the cupbearer describes his dream. He says, I dreamt that there is a branch of vines. There are three branches that sprout. Grapes come out. I squeeze the grapes, put them into a cup, and serve it to Pharaoh. Joseph says, hey, great. In three days' time, Pharaoh is going to restore you to your position. And when he does, please vouch for me, because I've been put here. I haven't done anything wrong. I was sold into slavery. Now I'm in prison. Please vouch for me. Cupbearer goes, sure, I got your back, if your dream interpretation is correct. Love you, man. I got your back. No worries. Baker hears a great interpretation. He says, sure. Hey, Joseph, can you interpret my dream too? Unfortunately, Baker gets not such great news. He says, my dream is three baskets filled with baked goods, the top one with pastries for Pharaoh, and then birds come and start eating away at the pastries for the Pharaoh. Joseph says, well, yeah, that means three days too, your three baskets, but in three days' time, you're going to get executed by Pharaoh and birds are going to peck away at your flesh. So not so great of interpretation. And what ends up happening is exactly what Joseph said. Three days later, Pharaoh's birthday comes. He pulls cupbearer and baker out of prison, restores the cupbearer, and executes the baker, and the baker has his unfortunate ending. And so, unfortunately for Joseph, cupbearer kind of forgets about Joseph in jail. And not just for like a little bit of time, two more years goes by and Joseph is stuck in prison, waiting for cupbearer to come back on his word. That is until Pharaoh has a dream. This is a very dream-filled story. So Pharaoh has a dream one night, goes to sleep, sees seven healthy fat cows come up out of the Nile and graze on the reeds. Then seven skinny, scrawny, starving cows come out and eat the fat cows, which is very strange because normally cows don't eat cows. They tell you to eat more chicken. Sorry, Chick-fil-A is closed today. You can go there tomorrow. So he wakes up disturbed, obviously, because cows don't eat cows, goes back to sleep and has another dream. He dreams that there's a stalk of grain, seven heads of grain that are healthy, Another one sprouts up with seven scrawny ones, eats the fat ones. Again, he wakes up. You've got grains eating grains, cows eating cows. What in the world's going on in my dreams? So he calls for all of his magicians and wise men, asking for anyone who might be able to interpret his dreams. Guess who finally remembers what he was supposed to do? Cupbearer. Oh, yeah. Pharaoh, um, sorry, forgot to mention this awesome guy I met prison, who was there, didn't actually do anything wrong, interpreted our dreams to a T, knew exactly what he was talking about. You might want to release him. He might know what your dreams mean. So Joseph is finally released, cleaned up because he's been in prison. We don't know for how much time. They, it says that he's shaved and cleaned up and brought to Pharaoh. Pharaoh tells him the dreams again, which is very lengthy. He goes through the whole thing again. Joseph says, I don't interpret dreams. God interprets dreams. But because you dreamt this twice, 
it is so. God has come to you to warn you that there are going to be seven years of prosperity and then seven years of famine. And the famine is going to be so horrible that they're going to forget everyone in the land how good the seven years of prosperity was. So you guys are going to need to be careful, put aside your grain to prepare for the seven years of famine so everyone in Egypt doesn't die. So Pharaoh looks around and says, um, Joseph, you're hired because there's no one wiser or smarter than you in the land. You get the job of taking care of all the grains when this happens. Joseph, again, overachiever, gets pulled up to the top. Pharaoh puts him next in charge. No one is more powerful than Joseph except for Pharaoh. Gives him his signet ring. We've been talking about that. So that's the ring that seals the Pharaoh's name onto everything that he's doing. So now Joseph goes from slave to prisoner to basically as good as Pharaoh minus the tiny title difference. He's 30 years old at the time. So 13 years have now passed from the time he was sold into slavery. He's given a new Egyptian name. Forgive me for trying to pronounce it. I don't have Joseph here to correct me. Zephaneth Hanea, best I can do with that. And his wife, he is given, who is a priest's daughter. So he gets a PK for a wife, Asenath. And that's where he has two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, who are going to be key players later on as we move on. So in this bountiful, so as predicted, we have the seven years of wonderful harvest and one-fifth, so 20%. So those of you who argue about the 10% or not, in this story, it's 20%. I don't know. So 20% of everything is set aside to make sure that they make it through the famine. They start storing up their goods, guarding it because they need to make sure that it's saved for later. They start keeping track, and it's so bountiful, they lose track of how much food they're even storing. That's how bountiful the harvest is for seven years. And as predicted, exactly after those seven years of harvest happened, famine came and it spread across the nation as it was predicted. Two years into that famine, it spread to Canaan, which is where Jacob and Joseph's brothers live. Unfortunately, their harvest is going bad as well. So Jacob says to his sons, 10 sons, hey, I hear there's grain in Egypt. Take some money, go get us grain so that we don't starve. So he sends his 10 sons. He leaves Benjamin behind. He's got the sneaky suspicion that something bad might happen to Benjamin. So he says, I'm leaving Benjamin behind. You guys go. You're going to go grab grain for us so that we don't starve. So they pack up their donkeys. Apparently, it's an 11-day journey. I like to Google a lot to make sure that these details are cool. So 11 days, they head over to Egypt. Everyone has to go to Joseph to get grains. And so the brothers come, Joseph recognizes them, they don't recognize him. And this is where the interesting detail comes in. It's like, well, how do they not recognize their brother? Remember, he was 17 when they sold him into slavery. He was 30 when he was given this position, seven years of harvest, two years of famine. So he's about a 39-year-old man instead of a 17-year-old boy. Big difference. Plus, he's in Egyptian garb. He probably has no hair, maybe eyeliner. I don't know. He's very well-dressed. And he talked to them through an interpreter. So he's very well-versed. So he recognizes them. They don't recognize him. And so they come in asking for grain. That's the procedure. And he immediately accuses them of being spies. He's like, oh, I'm going to mess with my brothers. So he says, guys are spies. You're here to figure out what's wrong with us because we're in a famine. You're here to check us out. And they're, no, no, we're honest shepherds. We just came to get grain. We don't want to starve, please. We're honest men. And then Reuben, funny enough, goes, 
I think this is because of what we did to Joseph, we're finally getting punished. And Joseph hears all of this. They don't realize it, which is hilarious. So he ends up throwing them in prison for three days, which is great. And so he throws them in prison, pulls them back out and says, okay, in order to prove you're not spies, you said you had a younger brother and an, an old father. So go back, get the younger brother to prove that you're telling the truth. And so they're distraught because they know that that's their dad's new favorite is Benjamin. They're like, um, okay, but they also don't want to die or starve. So they are forced to choose someone to hold in prison. They don't choose, so Joseph chooses Simeon, which is kind of just dessert if you go back and read the other stories. So if Simeon gets stuck behind, left in prison, the 10 brothers, now nine, go back to Jacob and tell him the story. Now, mind you, Joseph keeps playing tricks on them. Not only does he send them with grain, he gives them back all of the coin that they used, all of their money back in their packs that they bought the grain with. So they're heading back. They've got the grain. They've got the money. They're like, oh, what in the world happened? We have all of our money back. So they're freaking out, but they don't go back right away to give the money back. So they go back home to Jacob, their father, tell him the story. Jacob, overly distraught, now I've lost another son, I've lost Joseph, now Simeon, now you want Benjamin, I'm going to lose three sons now, all because you guys couldn't keep your mouths shut. And they was like, but he kept asking us questions about our family. We didn't know he was going to use it against us. And so Reuben steps in first and tells his father, look, if anything happens to Benjamin when we bring him, you can kill my first two born sons. So he puts his sons up for collateral. So you see Reuben constantly vouching for Jacob, or for Joseph, which is really interesting. Unfortunately, some time goes by. Mind you, Simeon's stuck in prison this entire time in jail. And they run out of their grain. Finally, they go, um, yeah, we kind of need to go back and get more grain or we're going to starve. But we can't go back unless we bring Benjamin. So Jacob finally has to agree to let Benjamin go back. Judah finally steps in. Again, another redeeming qualities, especially if you go back to his other story and says, Father, I promise nothing will happen to Benjamin. You have me as collateral. I will be in debt to you. You can put this on me for the rest of my life if anything bad happens to Benjamin. So now you have Reuben giving his first two born sons and Judah backing up his word to bring Benjamin because you have starvation or these other issues going on. So Finally, they bring Benjamin back. The brothers head back to Egypt. And the funny thing about this timeline is that Judah says they could have been there and back at least two times. So about a month and a half has gone by in this whole transaction. So finally, the brothers pack up, bring Benjamin. Now, Jacob wants to make sure he gets Benjamin back and sends back not only the money from the first round of payment, but also another round. Plus, he sends in pistachio almonds and pistachios, because pistachio almonds aren't a nut. Sorry. <laughs> That would be interesting hybrid. So he sends both of them with him with other spices and different things to kind of sweeten the pot, make sure that whomever the manager is of Egypt sends his beloved youngest son back here. If we give him all these nice things as an offering, perhaps he'll make sure to give us our son back. And what's an interesting thing about Jacob is how often he's willing to give up all of his goods knowing that God's going to restore them. So just an interesting point and how important family is to him. So he sends Benjamin, the brothers, they come. Joseph sees his brothers, sees Benjamin for the first time now in what is this, 22 years. He has to excuse himself, goes and cries, weeps, probably has to fix his eyeliner, splashes water in his face, comes back out, sees his brothers, and invites them in for lunch. They're like, um, okay. 
is he going to pull us into slavery? What's going on? They, you know, they're terrified. Like, here's your money back. We don't know why it was put there. He's like, oh, God must have restored it to you. Right. They magically put the coins back in your bag. So they're freaking out because it's just all these weird things keep happening. They give them water to wash their feet and have lunch. Now, Egyptians and Hebrews don't eat together. They despise one another. Egyptians despise Hebrews. And so they, he puts them at their own table, lets Simeon out of jail finally. But he messes with them more and puts them in age order, oldest to youngest. And so they're sitting at the table going, um, this is really weird. So Joseph is at his table eating his goods, gives Benjamin five times as much food as his brothers. So, of course, great. Now Joseph's the favorite. Now Benjamin indirectly gets all this great food. And so he finishes the deal, sends them home, and uh, is supposed to leave Benjamin. But he lets them all go initially, puts the grain, and tells the manager, put as much grain into their bags as you can, plus give them back all of their goods. But I want you to put my cup in Benjamin's sack. His managers, of course, do what they are told. The brothers start leaving. Before they're out of the city, Joseph sends the soldiers after them. And the brothers are like, what now? Someone's stolen our master's cup that he uses to use for his divine uh, prophesying. Well, we didn't steal anything. We're honest men. Again, we've already proven that. We brought back our youngest brother. Whoever stole it, go ahead and kill him or put him into slavery. That sounds like a fair deal. Turns out it's Benjamin. (laughs) So they all go back to Joseph Judah steps in and pleads, my father is distraught. If you take Benjamin from us, he's surely going to die. He goes through the whole story, everything, propositions like, I've already put myself in front of him. Take me instead, puts himself in place of Benjamin, please. Joseph can't take it anymore and says, brothers, it's me, Joseph. Sorry, I messed with you this entire time, but it's me. Benjamin is the one that recognizes him first. And so they reunite. He says, no, 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 this is our long lost brother which is amazing. And so Joseph is so happy from this reunion. News spreads everywhere to his, to Pharaoh, to all the guards that he's now been reunited with his brothers. Now the brothers realizing that this is Joseph goes, we're so sorry we sold you into slavery. Can you ever forgive us? Joseph goes, who am I, God? Of course I'll forgive you. I wouldn't be where I am saving all of Egypt and my family, you, if I hadn't been sold into slavery and you hadn't done what you did. So I forgive you. Amazing. And that, you have to imagine, like, Joseph is basically Pharaoh, can do whatever he wants to his brothers, and that's the most he does to mess with them. I don't know that I would have been trusted to do that if I had that much power, if that had been done to me. So just saying, he's a little bit better on the scale. But anyway, we're all human. So he finally tells his brothers, I'll give you the best land. Pharaoh allows them to live in one of the best lands, tells them to go back. I'm going to give you Goshen. Now, on the map where Goshen is, is at the top of the River Nile, which is the most fertile land, because now they have nowhere to have their, their, uh, their sheep and all of their livestock have anywhere safe to eat because of the famine. So Joseph sets them up, Pharaoh agrees, and he says, go back, don't even worry about packing anything, I've got you. So he sends them back with all the donkeys and everything that they need to pack their goods. He sends back all of his brothers with a change of clothes, but again, puts favoritism on Benjamin, gives him five changes of clothes and 300 pieces of silver to go back with. And so they all end up traveling back with all of their goods back to Jacob, tell them, your son is alive, Joseph. So now Joseph has, is alive. Jacob has not lost any of his sons. Benjamin has restored all of these people. And so 
he packs everyone up. And this is where we get to another wonderful genealogy. They go through all of the sons and daughters of all of the tribes of Israel. And that's 66 people. So I'm going to save you that this morning. <laughs> I'm not going to even try and butcher those names. So in all, it's 70 people in the family who have to travel back now to Goshen. Joseph ends up meeting them there, which is amazing. So he finally reunites with his father, Jacob, who is 130 years old at the time. So he meets them and brings five of his brothers and his father, Jacob, to go meet Pharaoh. And so Pharaoh, realizing that they're shepherds, he tells them, tell them you're shepherds, because again, Egyptians hate shepherds and Hebrews, so that way they can stay in Goshen, which is just outside of Egypt in the best land. Pharaoh agrees, and Jacob blesses Pharaoh two times in meeting him. And Pharaoh puts them in charge of all their livestock because Jacob's wonderful track record and taking care of livestock, they're now going to take care of Pharaoh's livestock. So now Jacob is set up. He lives for another 17 years. Just before he passes away, Joseph says, meet my two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. I want you to bless them. And so he's getting old, his eyesight is weak. And so Joseph knows this and puts his son strategically in front of Jacob, puts Manasseh on the right side, Ephraim on the left side, because Ephraim's the younger one. Now, when we were married, I switched my arms around. So when I was telling the story, I didn't remember which one was my right hand. <laughs> so Manasseh's on his right hand. Jacob intentionally switches his arms and switches the blessing between Ephraim and Manasseh. And Joseph goes, dad, what are you doing? You're switching the blessings. Manasseh's my oldest son. Why are you blessing him when Ephraim is the youngest? No, no, no. I did that intentionally. Although they will both have great nations, Ephraim will have stronger and better nations and lineage than that of Manasseh. So he did it intentionally, which continues the theme of the youngest sons getting better blessings and getting favoritism over the older. So we see this constantly throughout Genesis. And so we move through, Gene mentioned to you before, he is on his deathbed, gives blessings and curses to his various sons. You have that um, prophecy of Judah and the lineage of Jesus from Judah, which is an amazing scripture. I encourage you to go back and read that. And then he passes away at the ripe old age of 147, not as old as his forefathers, but pretty old. And so before he passes away, he tells Joseph, please send me back to the cave that Abram bought. Put me in the cave of my, my ancestors. That is the cave that Abram bought for Sarai. Remember, he went back and forth, insisted on paying full price for it. So that's where Isaac is. Abram is buried. And so they put together his body, prepare it for burial, and have a whole procession that even Egyptians attend because of Jacob and what he has done. So they bring him there, bury him at 147 years old which is amazing. And so Joseph continues to live to about 110 years old, but not before, again, he saves all of Egypt from famine. Pharaoh gets the better under the deal. So he puts Joseph in charge. During the famine, not only do the people have to sell all of their riches, they give all of their money over for buying grains. They run out of money. And so they sell their livestock. They're like, okay, we've run out of money. So Joseph says, fine, give me your livestock. So they give their livestock. They run out of grain again well, give me your land. Okay. So then they sell their land. They're running out of land. Well, then sell yourselves. Okay. So by the end of the famine, Pharaoh not only owns all of the riches, all of the land, all of the livestock, but all of the people after all of this, all through Joseph's over-administration and getting them through the famine. So it ended up being very prosperous for Pharaoh, putting Joseph in charge. And one final note to be very 
aware of is at the end, after Jacob dies, the brothers are now really afraid. Great, dad's not going to intercede for us to Joseph. Now he's really going to take his revenge out on us. And so we're going to tell him that dad told him that he needs to forgive us so that uh, he doesn't take it out on us again. And so Joseph says, fine, I, again, I forgive you. Who am I, God, not to forgive you? I'm not, I'm not going to punish you. Only God punishes. So he forgives his brothers once again and says, I will provide for you and your families. And so all of the people are going to be great. And what's also wonderful in this story, because I'm running out of time, there are two prophecies, again, of what's going to happen in Exodus, of people being the Israelites, being brought up, being a great people. God promises not only in a dream to Jacob, but also to Joseph, I will lead your people back out. And so that's going to set us up for Exodus and Moses, those dreams of God, reassuring them that although they're going to Egypt, don't worry about it. I've got you. I'm going to bring you back. And so all of that happens, including the redemption and forgiveness of Joseph's brothers. And so that gets me to what an amazing point of the story that this is, that regardless of what Joseph went through, I mean, he was sold into slavery, put into prison, gets actually super administrator, top person next to Pharaoh, saves his family, and forgives his brothers for what they've done for him, to him, and the hatred they had against him. So for me, what it reminds me of is that no matter what I've gone through in my life, because I've gone through and looked at why in the world was I in a Cinderella story? Why in the world did I go through this? Because God turns your mess into your message. And that was the one thing Joseph kept telling his brothers, that God had me here. He had you do what you did so that I could do what I'm doing now, saving not only the people of Egypt, but all of my people. And if you hadn't done that, I wouldn't be here. And so when I look at my life or other people's lives and all of the horrible things that you think that you're going through, and you're like, why God, why? He has a different plan for you at the end of the story you may not be able to see yet. I can look back and literally, some, those of you who I mentor are going to laugh, I can literally, when I'm talking to certain women that I work with, they'll tell me what they're going through. And I think, oh my gosh, I can't believe I went through the same exact thing so that I could walk you through this part of your life. So I can't believe I had to go through such a horrible situation to help you get through yours. And so I get to be a blessing because of the things that happened to me in my life to be able to bless others, which is amazing. And that's what we get to do in Christianity is take our messes and turn them into our messages. And as far as forgiveness, Joseph makes it very clear, who am I, God, not to forgive? So again, when it comes to forgiveness, not only for other people, if God can forgive us of all of the horrible things that we've done, I've done in my past, who knows? He can forgive me. Who am I not to forgive anyone else in my life? I'm not God. Only God can punish people. It's not my job to inflict revenge. He's got it. He knows their story. He knows their ending. My job is to forgive them and show them the light of Christ and be that forgiveness and freeing myself, including forgiving myself for the things that I've done. Because one part of my story that most of you know or do not know is that I'm in recovery and I never thought that my mess that was alcoholism would be my message of blessing and recovery, that I had the wonderful timing that my seven-year anniversary was Friday before my message today.
And part of that is forgiving others and forgiving myself for all the things that I've done when I was in my addiction. And so the story of Joseph, again, that's all God, is pulling that all together in the timing and reminding me, most importantly, me, to forgive myself and to forgive others for the journey. Like I said, it's a Cinderella story. I've been through a lot, not as bad as others, but I look back and reviewing Joseph, remember, man, if those things hadn't happened, I wouldn't be standing here today, sober seven years, working with the people that I'm working with and being able to share my message from my mess. And so I encourage all of you, wherever you are in your mess, if you're still going through it, let it be your message someday. And if you have a message, please share it. You might not have to do it on the stage, but please share it with each other and let God take the credit for it because without him, we're nothing. So remember, I love you. We love you as a church. And most importantly, he loves you. Thank you.